Psychomedy is brought to you by ThreadUp, Manchester-based therapy that supports creativity. I'm Rafaela Nunes, the founder of ThreadUp and the counsellor support in the creative community. Comedians and creatives in general can experience anxiety, depression, low moods, and this in turn can affect their creativity. One-to-one counselling can facilitate a safe space for creatives to explore any difficulties, to gain self-awareness, to develop strategies that work, and ultimately to create choices that are aligned with the natural creative flow. If you are in need of support, then please get in touch. Visit threadup.co.uk to book your counselling sessions at reduced rates when you quote Psychomedy. to Psychomedy. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a degree I definitely remember every single word of, and it gives a massive amount of credibility to me discussing the psychology of stand-up comedy with today's very special guest, the completely brilliant Marcus Brigstock. Marcus, how are you today? I'm good, thanks, man. It's nice to see you. Not that I'm looking at you, but (laughs) I know you're here because I can hear you, and I saw you before I looked away. (laughs) Yes, as normal on Psychomedy, we won't be looking at each other for the duration of the chat. Marx is laying back on his sofa here. Um, So yes, I saw you at the Comedy Store last night. How are you feeling today after that? How's your come down after a gig like that? How's your sleep? Yeah, uh, yeah, it was good. It was good. I really enjoyed it. I mean, these are that last night and then one last weekend are the first club sets I've done in many, many years. Wow, okay. Um, you know, I've, I've done some benefit gigs in clubs and I've occasionally sort of popped up and done stuff, but very much as a novelty. Mm. But this is part of a concerted effort to mm. get stuck in and, and, you know, find my feet again because I've been busy doing a very different project for the last year or so. Yeah. Um, in terms of come down, I was on a high afterwards, mm. a real high and i wonder whether those are a bit tempered when i do a um tour show by the fact that i'll have been on for nearly two hours Mm. um whereas the short the short intense kick of a um of a club set i don't know i think it is quite a buzz yeah yeah. i don't sleep like i used to that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if that's conscience or age probably both right okay We'll come on to that gig um, in a sec. It was it was fantastic to see you do that. And um, so yeah, uh, you were at Bristol University with me, as yeah, you know, long time ago. Um, so I may have seen some of your first few stand-up gigs. Yeah. And what I remember from those days is you seemed incredibly slick, right from the off in stand-up. Um, incredibly slick, confident. What what do you think put you in such a if you agree with that. <laughs> now, what do you think put you in such a good place to hit the ground uh, running so early? Three things. Uh, so the first is, 
you know, I, I was at private school from the age of seven. Mm. And f for all the interesting uh, adverse effects that can have, it does just inject everybody who has it with an odd, misplaced sense of everything will always be all right. <laughs> I'll be fine. Um, so some confidence came from there. And then also, you know, I went into rehab for addiction problems when I was 17. Mm. So by the time I, I started doing those first gigs at Bristol, that was five years, I was five years sober by then. And I'd known people who'd died, you know, who'd, who'd not managed to stay sober and they'd disappeared and died. I'd known people who'd shared the very depths of their despair and 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 then hope and all the rest of it so um without wishing to <laughs> sound like a vietnam vet or something <laughs> i'd seen a lot mm. um and then finally and i i, I think most importantly i loved it mm. i just loved it i loved it from the first gig i did i was terrified and i still am sometimes but I really just loved it. I, I like being on stage. I always have. And with stand-up, I just found a way you can be on stage. You don't have to wait mm. for someone to give you permission. You write it, and then you do it. And if the doing is no good, maybe the writing's no good, or maybe your performance is no good, but they're very... Those are things you can, you can grab, and you can try and fix, and you can always try and improve. Mm. So I really, really liked it. Mm. And then, you know, I mean... There are probably lots of more complicated reasons why it was a good fit for me. But yeah. I think that's where the confidence came from. Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard you saying that you had a had a real plan uh, at university. That's why you were at university, to yeah. do stand-up and, 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 and meet comedians. So your first gig was at university, was it? It was a university gig? No, was it, was, it was just before. Okay. So I tried to get into um, Central School of Speech and Drama and didn't get in. Mm. And a dear friend of mine, who sadly now died, um, took me out for lunch. I was really sad about it. And he said, well, I don't know why you're trying to be an actor anyway. You're shit at it. Go and be funny. You're funny. <laughs> and I was like, look, you can't just do comedy. That's not how it works. Because I was a huge fan of, uh, particularly Robin Williams live at the Met, mm. and I kind of I knew the whole, I knew that whole show. I could just speak it at any given time. Mm. And he, my friend James, booked a gig for me, and it was a Kiss FM um, comedy competition at a bar up in Hoban. Mm. And it was the first ever bit of stand up I'd done, and I came second in the competition. The first three minutes on stage were absolutely terrible. Mm. I used lots of props and had no idea. And once I let go of all the props and started talking, people really liked it. Mm. So I'd done a couple of gigs before Bristol. But yeah, I did arrive at uni, like, like I assume everyone at Bristol, wishing I'd been at Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> that had been oh, the, yes. the plan. I was old enough to know what the footlights were. Yeah. And, and that the most of what I loved in comedy had been at least, if it hadn't come from there, it had been in some way linked to it. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I had this passion for it. And actually, I'd assumed at Bristol that they would have a, you know, a, a really busy comedy scene and that they, they would have their own equivalent of the footlights. And that <laughs> yeah. was not the case. No, you were the scene. Yeah, we built it. Yeah. We built it. And, and to begin with, 
so there was Dan Tetzel and Danny Robbins mm. and myself. Dan had graduated and I saw him do a stand-up set maybe the second night I was at Bristol. Mm. And I went, that guy, that guy, that's what I want to do. He's brilliant. I yeah, love him. Yeah, he was. Yeah, brilliant. And Dan and I, 24 years later, are writing a sitcom together. He directed my last show. So, you know, it, it was great. And Danny Robbins was in my year and I he had done a lot of stand-up in Newcastle and he was only like 18 when I met him mm. so I was like wow you're amazing how have you done that and then there was a bunch of other guys in there some of whom still haven't forgiven us for what we did to them so there were seven of us in Club Seals mm, which was the group remember, we, yeah. we put together and we went to Edinburgh and after the first Edinburgh in 96, I, I won the BBC New Comedy Award. Mm. And I was like, this is it. This is all I want to do. This will be my life now. And so I didn't, I didn't throw the other guys out, but I did say, this is what we're doing. And if you want to come with us, this is the level of commitment. Mm. And they quite rightly were pursuing their degrees <laughs> and... And we're like, well, what are you talking about, you madman? <laughs> Danny, on the other hand, was like, yeah, fine, I'll find a way, and, and did. And Dan, it, it kind of worked for him. So we, we cruelly, brutally left behind the others and became just the three of us. But then we're able to, uh, to work with other people. And yeah. it, it was, there was definitely a lot of arrogance in me at that time, which, you know, arrogance is an embarrassing quality to have, I think. But also, if I'm honest, I look at that and I think, well, thank goodness I had that. Mm. I don't think things would have worked out like they did, and I'm glad they did work out that way. So I'll, yeah, I'll weather that storm. Had you had you been kind of training yourself in your mind or kind of visualizing this moment? Because as I say, it did seem like you were hitting the ground running. It did seem like you had a plan. As you say there, you said in 1996, right from the office, yeah. like this is it. This is what we need to do. Mm -hmm. Had you been spending many years from those school days with that, with, you know, kind of visualizing this moment. No, what it, what it was, was, was there was no join up. So I looked at Blackadder mm. and I looked at whose line is it anyway. And I looked at Robin Williams live at the Met and other stuff, but those ones stand out and the young ones. Mm. And I thought they were incredible. I just was like, it was like a magic spell and, and I just, I could, I've always been able to watch something and remember it. So I, I knew all of those scripts, mm. but I had not joined up in my head the idea that I could do that. I mm. think somewhere I felt like I would like to do that or even maybe somewhere deep down, like I will do this one day somehow. Mm. But I had no idea that to do it, you do it. That's it. It's as simple as that. Mm. And so as soon as I started doing it, I went from like one tentative step into that world to, as you said, like I'm running, I'm just, I'm going full speed. Yeah. I want all of this as much as I can. And, you know, we, Dan, Danny and I in particular and, and others who we were working with, it was, it was, it was amazing. You know, like we sold, we sold shows to the halls of residence. Mm. We'd go round to their Ents guy and go, look, do you want us? We'll do you a night of comedy in your hall of residence. And, and they booked us. And so we got good at that, at the hustle of it. Mm. 
Yeah. We had pages. <laughs> uh, Club Seals had pages because no one had mobile phones, you know, and, and there was no way of finding anybody. No one had a landline or anything. So we, we bought pages and we bought um, a, a mini disc or, yeah, a mini disc machine for our sound cues. And, mm. and you know, we saved the money that we, we made I and mean, it was, you know, it was pennies in some respects but at that time it, it was great we yeah. saved that money and invested it and we bought costumes and we bought props and so yeah I was I was absolutely on a mission yeah and I think as well you know post post rehab I'd come out of rehab aged 18 having halved my body weight in seven months and oh. been you know I was then like the only sober 18 year old I knew so finding something that brought meaning to a life that felt strange mm. was a very obvious, uh, it, was, it was just a very obvious thing to grab with both hands. Yeah. Did you do any therapy at that time? Yeah. To bring you out of that, yeah? Yeah, 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 lots, lots. Yeah. I mean, I'd been in, so I'd been in a, in a rehab centre and I was attending 12-step um, meetings still. Yeah. And... I don't think I was having any one-to-one counselling. I mean, didn't to be honest, I, I didn't feel at that time in, inclined to have any because everything felt brilliant other than slight stress of trying to balance out the beginnings of a stand-up career with, um, with trying to do a degree, which then oh. eventually I didn't do because I was like, well, <laughs> why, why would you do that? Brilliant, because you were out of that time. Yeah, it was it was great. Yeah. I was, you know, I was. How did you How did you pull yourself out of it though? Did you of the addiction? Yeah. Oh well, I I was taken in, somewhat against my will to okay. a, to a rehab center and sort of detoxed. And in yeah. those days, insurance companies would pay for you to stay in rehab until you were better, as opposed to now they sort of put you in there long enough to to dry out really, hmm. which is which is when you need the most help. Anyone can dry out. It's when it's when you start to emerge again and realise why you were medicating in the first place. Mm. So I stayed in rehab for four months and then I was in a halfway house for seven months. Mm. And then aged like 18, I had no qualifications at all. Mm. So I took myself off to college and did a performing arts course and, mm. you know... Um, so through that therapy, did, did, you, did you explore anything in terms of your alcoholism in terms of you know obviously it can have genetic factors as well as psychological factors and um I mean, yes. some of the psychological factors like impulsiveness low self-esteem need for approval mm. that tends to maybe <laughs> lead to why you went into stand-up i mean did you yeah i have do a you see that at all i have a better understanding of that stuff now than i had at that time i think at the time i was encouraged to look less at the why and more at the what might I do about this. You know, uh -huh. the 12-step approach does look at cause a little bit, but it looks much more at taking responsibility for your behaviour, uh -huh. seeking to change it, making uh -huh. amends for the things you've done wrong and helping others. So that's that's the system that, that I was in. But now I've done a lot more searching and digging. And, you know, I mean, there's the stuff. There's like, well boarding school at seven mm. some people cope some people don't I coped brilliantly it just happened to be that my way of coping 
was by developing a really powerful addiction, you know, which at the time was a very sensible choice. I was in more pain than I could deal with. So I found mm. a way of not being in pain. That's what smart people do. Yeah. The fact that it then blew up is, you know, is, I couldn't have known. Um, but in terms of stand up, there's absolutely no doubt that it ticks the addict box. <laughs> it's a huge buzz. Yeah. It's a colossal buzz. It definitely sticks a powerful band-aid over any feelings of low self-esteem while you're doing it. Yeah. It's it's the big gamble, right? It's the all right, I'm going to entertain you now, but but with one criteria, which is if you're not laughing, I'm not doing my job. Mm. Right? So I feel like I always have like stand up is a is a very high stakes form of art you know it doesn't take the precision and the training that that dance or singing or some acting takes but it's high stakes mm. and so there's massive rewards yeah for the ego in in the moment and then also you know i i've found i've i'm at a much more sort of uh, spiritual place with it now in that I tend to run through quite uh, like an active gratitude list before I go on stage. Um, I pray to, okay. to what I don't know, but I, I sort of speak gratitude for the opportunity to do it mm. and for the people who have come to see it. And that works extremely well. It makes better shows. Yeah. Um, including at things like corporates, which, you know, which can be, which can be quite difficult. <laughs> but actually, you know, if I go in with the attitude, well, there's a real chance I might be the funnest thing about this one night out that this industry has this year. Yeah. That their company pays for, you know. Mm. Uh, I might be the best thing on. Maybe. I, uh, on that basis, I will try. And so it's, that's taken away... A thing that a lot of comics have, and I know I used to have it, of this sort of, oh, Christ, I've got to do a corporate just for the money. You know, oh. this dirty secret thing. I go, no, great, this is fantastic. Mm. Um, didn't used to be like that. And then I think the come down, the come down was difficult to deal with sometimes. Yeah. So you were saying you're praying, but you don't know to who. Has is your... Has your touch points on faith changed over the years? Because I remember yes. you doing your shows, um, God Collar, and yeah. you know you talking about your lack of faith um, yeah. around that time. Has that has that changed then over the the last? Period? Yes, it has. It's changed a lot actually. Yeah. I mean, I was I was not interested in faith and religion for a really long time, and then I was because it was an interesting subject, and I strayed into it, and I fell in with. Christopher Hitchens and uh, Richard Dawkins. Mm. And you know, I, I was very in that whole ath loud atheist thing. And yeah. then James died, the guy who booked that first ever gig for me, my best friend. And I found, I found that I had not created out of atheism, I'd not created anywhere f for that part of myself to go when I was in pain or needed something and I really wanted James to be somewhere you know to exist somewhere so I sort of had the opposite of a crisis of faith I had a sort of 
crisis of atheism. And that's really what Godcaller was about. Mm. The, and, you know, the, the substance comedically of that show was, here's why I'm not religious, because religion is, is a political system. Religion is how faith organises itself in, into small political groupings and therefore it's toxic. It concentrates power into the hands of usually old men. Mm. Um, and so it was very much a rejection of religion. But the whole point about the show, and it, this was, uh, it, I don't think he, he knows. I have reminded him of it. But anyway, this was very much encouraged by Daniel Kitson. I did a gig with, with Daniel and he was asking what I was working on and I was telling him and I said, I don't, I don't know if I can do it, man, because I just don't know what I think. And he said, yeah, that's the show to write, isn't it? Mm. Don't tell them what you think. Tell them what you don't know. Talk about uncertainty. Yeah. Talk about where your doubts are. I was like, wow. And it was great. It just absolutely opened a door because all my comedy at that time was about, <clears throat> was about certainty. So, and then, <clears throat> then I wrote the, the book of God Collar and stuff, yeah. which examined it all even further. But yeah, you know, over time, I've found that um, I have a belief now in something beyond myself. And I have absolutely no interest in asking any questions of it. Mm. So if you wanted to call it God, you could. And I'd be fine with that. I, I often do because it's an easier um, reference point. But... God, if that's what it is, has no view on the upcoming election or Israel and Palestine or women's rights or what I should do next. That's not what it's for. Basically, the faith that I have is in, I suppose, practiced gratitude. Mm. Right. So I write a gratitude list every morning um, because... It's really helpful to do that. Yeah, it, it, it's it's wonderful, and and it makes my shows better. That's not mm. why I write it in the morning, but it makes my shows better. So yeah, I've gone through a very similar thing over the last few years, coming from a total atheist standpoint to yeah, those kind of things you're talking about. So so in those moments where, as you say, you were um, pacing around in the comedy store dressing room, are those thoughts flowing into your head then and giving you some some power in your mind? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, last night I was in a dress. I was in a dressing room with five people in it. Yeah, and, and it's I was a small dressing room. I was it? pacing because I was nervous last mm. night. There's no room to pace in there. I don't no, know no you. room to pace. It was like <laughs> one step forward, one step back. You know, but but I could feel something that I really like. I could feel an energy building within me. Mm. It what it is is it's like it's like getting a fishing net and throwing it over nervousness <laughs> and gathering it in to make a shape and th and that shape is this becomes this sort of useful force that means that when I go out on stage my brain and my body are doing something that I'm not completely on top of I'm not completely in control of it uh. and it's really exciting and there's a lot I guess of adrenaline in that in that mix and whatever other chemicals are in my head but it, it, there's a kind of focusing in of that. That's different when I'm on tour because I'm usually on my own. Mm. And so then it's a bit more still and that's when I would more actively sort of speak these gratitudes or pray. Yeah. Uh, 
whatever uh, you know it's easier to say pray to describe what I'm doing but it, it's actually like a spoken gratitude thing yeah. so I didn't really do that last night because the room was full <laughs> I just kind of let my brain get up into a into a buzz yeah and and it was curious because you know I when I was club gigging you could do seven gigs across a weekend mm. you could do a Thursday night you could do two or three gigs on a Friday, three or four on a Saturday and a Sunday. Yeah. It was a lot, you know, and I've no idea how I managed my, uh, the, 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 the sort of internal chemical. I was, I've remained sober all, all these years. Um, oh. So the internal chemical thing that happens, you know, I mean, I was better at sleeping in those days. So after a night of gigging, I would go to bed late and stay asleep until midday. Yeah. That doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's that highs and lows between the gigs as well as you're rushing from gig to gig, you know? Yeah, I, remember, I mean, I, you yeah. You the BBC Comedy Award. I have a vague memory of you winning the BBC Comedy Award and then doing a gig in late and live that I was That's at. right. And I uh, yeah. hope you don't mind me saying so because it's 25 years later, whatever. It didn't go that well. No, that's true. That's absolutely true. <laughs> and man. I remember yeah. looking at you there and think, having seen you at university, and in some ways, because I wanted to do stand up at university, but I didn't. I did theatre. And in some ways, um, you're going to feel bad about yourself now, Marcus. How good you were almost put me off because I thought, oh. God, he's seeing the ground running <laughs> in a way I could never do. And then when I saw you do badly at that gig after winning the BBC Comedy Award, I'm like, this job is impossible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I had a thing happen. It was really interesting to me, which was I became, when we were at Bristol, mm. I was the compare of the uh, Bristol Flyer, um, the comedy box at the Bristol Flyer mm. upstairs. Bristol Flyer down in Redland. Oh, what a gig. Oh, it was so great. Yeah. So great. It's what comedy clubs should be. It's run by a wonderful guy called Steve Lount. And it, it it was small and tightly packed. And the room was as well set up as it could be and blah. Mm. Matt Lucas came down as Sir Bernard Chumley. And I've never laughed more or seen an audience more completely enthralled to what they were seeing than that. The only other time actually was the first time I saw Michael McIntyre once he'd hit full speed. Yeah. And and just, it, it was remarkable. But anyway, so I saw Matt Lucas do this thing and I was like, wow. And he was just at the beginnings of working with Vic and Bob and, you know, so it was a thing. Mm. Two weeks later, he was back in Bristol doing Jesters, which is less than a mile up the road. Uh, it's just another comedy club in, in Bristol, and he died on his ass. Mm -hmm. He played to an embarrassed and then angry silence. <laughs> and he was doing the same stuff. And I <laughs> yeah. was like, oh, I see. Right. Okay. So sometimes it's not the material or the person. Sometimes there's something else. And it's oh. not that Jester's was was a bad gig. Sometimes it was, but it wasn't necessarily a bad gig. It's just some nights weird things happen and, yeah. you know, you've got it and then it slips away and any number of... You can misjudge it. You can lose a room really quickly. What's rare is lose a room and win it back. Mm. That's hard. So psychologically, have you, have you coped quite well then over the years in terms of those highs and lows? Because they, they come so quickly sometimes, you know? Those yeah, really mixed. Things. I mean, 
it basically comes down to how well I'm looking after myself in the rest of my life. Right, okay. So I've done tours that have caused me terrible, terrible harm. Mm. Uh, By which I mean at the end of them, having made some bad decisions, by the end I was incapable of making good decisions. Bad decisions in your personal life, you mean? Yeah, Yeah. terrible. Yeah. Uh, Behaving in a very reckless, incredibly selfish way, endangering myself. Mm. And... um, I've had to address that. And, you know, you don't know. I mean, you can read about it and you'll hear comics going, well, it's a bit tough, a bit lonely. But, yeah, the high and the low. I mean, you know, I try and get home if I can, not least because I've got kids and it's cheaper to be at home and it's nicer to wake up in your own bed and all the rest of it. But it is often the case that I'll get in the car, drive for five, maybe six hours alone, get out, do two hours of comedy to an audience who adore me, and clap and ask for more because they like it so much and laugh at everything I say and then want me to sign things and have their picture taken with me. And then I get in the car again and drive four hours back in the dark. It's almost always an autumn tour. So usually I've set off in near darkness. And then you come back knackered to an empty silent house and you climb into bed and on you go, or you go to a hotel and the only thing you say to another person between gigs is yes, table for one, thank you. I mean, of course it's bad for you, you know? <laughs> your, mind's not, your mind's not built for that. <laughs> no. what... So, so the, the, come down, the come down is not a thing that I have a great deal of sort of good technique for. It's what I do before that makes the difference. So if I start if I start my day and my evening in a good place, mm. then it doesn't matter how well the gig goes. I'll be okay afterwards. You know. Okay. So your happiness is yeah, happiness is good so now. Related it's, to your personal life rather than yes. your professional life now. Yes, and absolutely. So, I mean, you know, the, 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 yeah, there've been times when I've been doing a show that that was difficult. I mean, the tour before the last one, uh, which was, I think, Why the Long Face, was about happiness. So the first half of the show was, why is it so hard to be happy when lots of things are great, when they're obviously great? I've got all this brilliant stuff in my life, and yet I'm in pain. And then the second half of the show was, here's what you can do about that. Here's some ways of being happy, which actually... I was not in a good place and a lot of what I said was just a straight up lie. I was doing all sorts of things to make myself happy, none of which were any good. (laughs) But I was talking a lot about Brexit on that tour and playing in places that had voted largely for Brexit and finding the gigs hard and finding people walking out halfway through. All right. And that's really hard. You know, it's hard partly because, you know, I fell into comedy with passion and I'm still passionate about it and I still love it and also this nice house we're sitting in and my two kids depend on me staying good at it yeah and people leaving is bad news (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean you talk about um politics and 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 passion there I think there's an interesting thing with your comedy that I've seen over the years that you have shown yourself to be so passionate about politics and and religion and um 
And that's why seeing you at the comedy store yesterday was so great because I didn't know what to expect. I thought, am I going to get a kind of live at the Apollo kind of set where you're not mentioning that so much? And straight off the bat, you were talking about the election. And as we talked about the comedy store gig, shall we play in a clip from the start of that gig just to give people a flavour of what you were talking about last night? <laughs> the situation in this country, holy shit. This is the one, isn't it? This election, there is no good result to this election. This is the one. Not a single good result. If the party you vote for wins, it will be like winning a goldfish at the fair. You'll be pleased initially, but you know deep down the best result is for it to die in the bag before you get to the <laughs> I just thought it was great. You were, you were talking about Jacob Rees-Mogg and his comments about Grenfell. Yeah. And is, th is there a conflict in your mind between what you want to do and what you have to do in your career? Because I, I, I do see that with you, that you, you, you jump between... Uh, the way I see it is what you're really passionate about and maybe what you have to do, but maybe I've got that completely wrong and you enjoy both equally as much. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, in terms of content, it, it, it's not so much that I that there's stuff I have to do in order, for example, to be sort of <laughs> commercially acceptable. <laughs> it's more, to be, to be honest, that the rant, which, you know, there was a big sort of evolution f for me that came through working on The Now Show, oh. where I became their, their guy that, that did the angry, look at the state of the world. Yep. And it was great, and I really loved it. And it, but it came, it did come at a price, because I was having to wind myself up. <laughs> Some weeks, a thing doesn't happen, <laughs> and your life's good because things are good, you know. Yeah. And my life is good, and and I was having to sort of stick needles into myself to 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 find these pockets of rage about something and you and you're another thing and blah 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 and you know I like it. I fought the good fight on climate change years ago now uh, you know now I don't know what to do with it all because I know that my life is is bad in terms of sustainability right so I sort of keep shtum about that and and so that's difficult but I can't I can't do 90 minutes of rage on stage uh, not because I'm worried that people won't want to see it, but because of what it costs me uh, and it's too much. And the thing is like, so we're, we're sitting in my living room and on the wall above me are Laurel and Hardy, Frankie Howard, Kenneth Williams and Hattie Jakes and Tommy Cooper and Richard Pryor and Joyce Grenfell. You know, just these, just the ones, Joe just, as just well. nearly Joe Pasquale. Yeah, yeah, of course, Jim Davidson, the big hitters. But these are mostly silly people. Yeah, they're silly. Richard Pryor wasn't. Richard talked a lot about his pain and his life on stage. But, but these are silly, joyful people. And the truth oh. is, the show that's made me laugh and brought more joy, joy into my life than any other on TV is The Muppet Show. Oh. Love it. I love it so much. Mm. It's so silly. And there is a really dumb, stupid, silly side to me. And a lot of people who are close to me mm. say, lean into that more. Go there. It's a more, <laughs> for me, that's a more dangerous place. There's much more vulnerability offering that up. 
than there is in ranting. Ranting makes me feel bulletproof. But you say people are saying that to you. Is that what you think you should do? Or what do you think you should do? Because as I say, is there, is there a conflict between what you're passionate about or what you believe you're passionate about and and that other stuff, that sillier stuff? Cause you, yeah, there is a conflict. There's mm. definitely a conflict because... Because I do care about the state of politics. You know, I care passionately about Brexit. It's so painful to me. Mm. And I really mind what's going to happen. And I mind about the distribution of wealth in the UK and how messed up it is and the deliberate underfunding of things that are just too important not to fund education being the first amongst them. the NHS usually makes the top of the list, but actually education uh, for me is, is higher up. I do care about those things a great deal. And comedy is such a, an incredible place to talk about those things, but give me a chance to do a silly voice. And I'm very happy in that place. You know, when I do improv, I love being made to laugh whilst making other people laugh. So it, it is difficult to know. And I, but I don't, I suppose I don't feel much like you can't do both on stage. Mm. You know, I mean. Well, you did both last night. I did I both think. last night. You were doing night. the voices. And yeah. You were, yeah. So is this you trying to kind of find a balance then between yes. those two elements? Yeah. Yes. And, and, and also I think from an audience's point of view, you know, they're not, they're not there for a rally. Some are. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's, there's clap comedy and laugh comedy, isn't there? Yeah. You know, and I know I've done lots of, if I say this and I go up at the end, you're going you're gonna to clap. I'm laughing already. Yeah. Of course. You know, and, and I, can get, I can get an audience there to sort of go, yeah, point well made, man. <laughs> but then, you know, just just go back a little bit and you're like, well, what's the, where's the, where's the joke there? I mean, so that the line about this election is like winning a, winning this election will feel like winning a goldfish at the fair, mm. which I, I'm, I'm fa just faintly worried about. It doesn't matter too much. It's only a few weeks till the election and it'll be fine. Mm. But if you analyse that joke too closely, what, what's it really saying? Well, I... God knows, really, <laughs> except that a, a win in this case will come with some responsibilities that we don't probably know how to meet. So lots of my friends want the Labour Party to, to form a government. Mm. Well, I think that might be very difficult for them. Lots of my friends want the Lib Dems to form a government. Well, they've said they'd overturn Brexit. What a brilliant idea. That's, that is what should happen. And the price will be enormous. And no one I know wants the Tories to win, other than my parents, maybe. Um, uh, but, you know, they, they will have, it'll be different. I suppose the joke stands up. Yeah. Better that the goldfish dies and we just keep having elections and, you know, something like that. But, but I you're, suppose... You're analysing the joke there. You kind of, as you say, maybe the Muppets wouldn't do that joke. <laughs> I think they wouldn't do that joke. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. You're but not then beating this... yourself up about that joke, though, are you? Because it's just like, it's, for me, it was just such a great place to start and just such a no, more no, I'm interesting not. I'm way not. to start. I'm not. I kind of like, I suppose when you, you know, 
if you do a joke and people laugh, then it's a good joke. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, it's fine. And then, and then you can look at, well, who who was the target of the joke and yeah. stuff like that. And, and in this case, I'm very happy that the punch is neither up, across, nor down. <laughs> it's just an observation on where we're at as, as, yeah. as people. Um, and how, how are you kind of minute by minute in that gig last night you know you say you were nervous beforehand but you collected those nerves up into a positive energy through faith yeah. and, and then what was i th what was really interesting for me watching you and only knowing afterwards that you hadn't been gigging so much you you seem to be very present in the moment you seem to be uh paying a lot of attention to what was going on in the room mm. Um, is that something that you usually do or you were doing more yeah. of that last night? You seem no, that, to be very in tune to any little bits of chatter or yeah. kind of movements from the crowd in a good way, not, not that it uh, took well, away from your performance. It was really great to see. The comedy store is very well built for that. It's why it's such a great club to play mm. because it's, it's, set, it's set up for stand-up. Yeah. In the, they're wrapped tightly around you. It's dark. It's underground. It's exactly what a, a comedy room should be. Mm. You can see everybody in that room from the stage. Yeah. And so, yeah, all of those sort of uh, radar, you know, that's on in a big way for me. And I'm very sensitive to the room. And I've become good at playing the whole room, right? Yeah. And I like it. Mm. I like the placement of a line here and the, it's not a technical exercise. You look at it afterwards and go, yeah, that's what I did. Mm. But, um, but, but there's, 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 a, there's a lot going on. And in fact, um, when I mentioned about recently getting married, someone said kids, I heard him say kids. And that to me is delightful because that's where I wanted to go. And it's, you know, it's mm. sort of hardly, hardly difficult is it to say got married people often think that yeah so he said it and then there we were and that that then feels to me like oh well you've you've kind of landed something you know like a, a trill on a stand-up set like <laughs> yeah, yeah. an impression it's helpful people like it yeah. <laughs> but there is it's funny how often something that happens in the room will will take you to where yeah you're going and i don't you know i have like a basket of material at any given time yeah. But I never have a set list in my head. Yeah. I know what I'm likely to begin with, but I'm yeah. not even tied to that because you don't know what's going to happen in the room. Yeah. And I know what I'm likely to end on because it's a particularly strong bit of material. Yeah. But, so, uh, but I never have a set list. Yeah. Towards the end of the gig, because you've done maybe done the closing bit a few times. Yeah. Are you kind of more on autopilot there in your mind and therefore paying more attention to the room? Because there's... There was a bit at the end of the gig where you'd clearly been, <laughs> your mind had yeah. gone on to someone. Um, yeah, I was cross. So what made him cross? Find out in the second half of my conversation with Marcus Brigstock next time. So coming up in part two, we hear the rest of that Comedy Store gig and we find out why he was focusing on just one man in the audience. Hear the remarkable interaction that happens at the end of the gig. And also Marcus talks about playing Barnum in theatre and his biggest challenge, crossing the tightrope. And when you fall, does it hurt or does it make you stronger? <laughs> I thought this is a, a brilliant challenge. Yeah. I thought, I don't think I can do this. 
but that was brief. And then I thought, try. So that was Psychomedy, written and presented by me, Nathan Cassidy, BSc in Psychology, and produced and edited by Mike Hansen, BA English for Pod People Productions, theme music by Mike as well. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, UK, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us a five-star review. It helps other people to find us, and only psychopaths leave three-star reviews. Follow us on social media at Pod People UK, at Psychomedy Pod, at Nathan Cassidy, and at Marcus Brigg. So see you next time for part two of Marcus Brickstock. Lots of love. Cheers. Pod people.